Welcome to the WBT Podcast. I'm Amalia Flynn, editor for the WBT, and I am joined by Mike Carson and David James, fellow editors of the WBT. Today we'll be talking about the philosophy of Richard Rorty and John Rawls and its relevance right now. Hi, this, uh, this is David. Nice to be here. I'm Mike, and it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to, about uh, Rorty and Rawls. That's, uh, uh, so we wanted to start with, uh, we had a great uh, connection between the two philosophers uh, from your professor. Could you kind of elaborate a little bit on that, maybe start off with that? Sure. Um, so back in graduate school, I had a professor, James Hirsch, and um, for his class, we read a book called Poeticized Culture, which he wrote. And it basically makes the argument that Rawls's liberalism, his uh, system of justice, uh, uh, fairness, um, cannot exist without the citizens adopting a Rorian irony or not holding their beliefs to be absolute. So he made the argument that in order for Rawls to succeed, uh, the people enacting that form of liberalism would need to adopt a Rorian irony, which I think is a really interesting way to link the two together. Yeah, I think that's a excellent way. I don't know much about Rawls, uh, but I've been fascinated just in general about a if liberalism uh, as a philosophy can work from a, a vantage point of irony or contingency, as Rorty comes back to again and again. He, uh, he thinks so. I uh, wonder what you all think, I guess, or could maybe we expand upon that in terms of what that means. David, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I have a, I have a lot of thoughts because both of these guys, I think, are really interesting. But, uh, yeah, Amalia has, has told me about this book where uh, the author is trying to sort of merge the ideas. And it's something I'd never done, even though, you know, it seems quite intuitive. You know, John Rawls and Richard Rorty are two of the most important American philosophers of the late 20th century, for sure. They're both uh, strong liberals and had very similar ideas on a lot of things. So um, it's actually, you know, it makes sense that they should sort of work together a little bit. But I had never really seen them compared. Rorty, I suppose, if we start from there, is a very sort of outside-the-box uh, anti-philosopher in a way. He's really against systems, whereas Rawls wanted to create a political system it would, uh, more like a social contract, it would ensure a liberal society. Yeah. So, yeah. And one of the ways that Rawls um, puts that out there, I believe, if I'm remembering everything correctly, is these ide- this idea of overlapping consensus. So the idea that people will hold their beliefs, and um, he calls it their comprehensive doctrine, so it's a set of their moral and political beliefs, Um, but that there is reasonable pluralism, uh, so meaning citizens have reasonable differences in those beliefs, but that a a system of fairness or a just society comes out of the overlapping consensus or the the places where those comprehensive doctrines overlap. And uh, what my professor was arguing was that that's not really possible unless those people who are enacting this form of government or form of citizenry believe that their beliefs are not absolute, meaning that they're that idea of irony that 
you know, that they're, that that's the only way to form that kind of overlapping consensus. Hmm. Right. And irony, of course, is a big key word with Rorty. Uh, he's uh, one of the main philosophers who's really defined it in a particular way. And so we should probably talk a little bit about what that means. I know his, his major work, uh, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, he defined a person as an ironist, which was somebody who had doubts about their own final vocabulary and uh, basically feels that all history and rules are contingent and nothing is really absolute, so everything is relative. And so she, you know, she thinks that, uh, you know, basically there is no absolute reality. So that's sort of his idea of irony. Uh, yeah, Mike, Mike, I think you've also thought about this. How do you feel about that? Well, I think, yeah, a lot of things. Uh, but the, as I looked through Rorty's stuff again, I have in preparation for this, thinking a lot about it's, we think ironically in the modern world and so on, and contingently, but Rorty seems to be arguing for his political project to work. Uh, for the liberal project is that everyone has to give up, like you were saying earlier, David, on philosophy itself almost, some kind of absolute or essential understanding, or you said with Rawls, the overlapping consensus. Uh, there can't be something static or absolute that figures out the situation. It's constantly being revised. And uh, Rorty seems okay with this and kind of saying people, philosophers, uh, and actually arguing, I feel, that you need to take philosophy out of politics. Uh, and there is no absolute, and philosophers are constantly seeking this absolute in some way or another. Uh, whether they're e Even when they're saying they're not, they are, Rorty is kind of arguing. And so uh, he kind of saying that you have to give it over to history, history entirely, uh, and this constant revision of what you know to be true, and what you call uh, essential to your particular vocabulary can, is contingent. Uh, but he himself, I feel, has his certain things he holds to be sacred and true and essential. Uh, and I guess that's I'm always wrestling with uh, how that actually plays out and whether it can work or not, I guess. Yeah, that was what I was thinking about when I was rereading Rorty as well, because in an ideal situation, it would work out. Um, but I found myself grappling with what happens, um, you know, in terms of cruelty he puts it out there. I think he actually uses a definition of liberal as, uh, as somebody, you know, who will not stand for um, any kind of cruelty. But I think that the problem when I was rereading it was this sounds great, but what happens when um, there's not a consensus among citizens or a government um, in terms of, um, you know, ethical standards or, or that kind of thing. How does it then? How does it then work? Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, maybe a big difference between the two. Like Rorty is—he's uh, not trying to create a system or government or even a society. He wants to express his hope of what uh, democracy could become. Uh, so it's always in terms of America, which is a great democratic hope. He continually goes back to Whitman and Dewey as his biggest uh, influences of the hope of America, of an optimistic future. But yeah, his key word is hope, to where uh, he has no illusions that people are not cruel and that the project can fail 
and America makes mistakes, uh, but he continually says we should focus on the future of creating uh, this society. And, you know, it's sort of an idealistic system in a way, whereas Rawls, he, he explicitly wants to create a, uh, a set of rules or this thought experiment of how we could make a liberal society, which is his, uh, you know, justice is fairness argument and a theory of justice. So he, he's going about it from a traditional analytical political philosopher, whereas Rorty, uh, he really goes much back to literature or poetry, and, you know, just the idea of hope. Yeah. Right. That's a great point. He talks point. about imagination, too, which I, I did enjoy um, looking back at that. He talks about that social progress. Uh, the vehicle for that is imagination, which gets to that idea of hope and re-envisioning or re-describing um, something to be even better. Yes, definitely. And that imagination, willing to imagine something that's different than how it is, and and it kind of giving philosophy over to history entirely in the fact that it can change. But he also, at the same time, I find fascinating is that he seems to be arguing also that you can't hold on to history like the things that were bad in the American past, like he, he kind of harps on this point a lot that America has done. He felt that the liberal academic world has uh, started obsessing over the bad stuff uh, and turning history into one thing or another when he, he seems to be arguing on some level that that has to be pushed aside and look to that imagination to the future, uh, which is a really fascinating thing to me because, I mean, uh, he actually goes so far to say is we have to give up the tragic sense uh, that is important to older cultures, but America does not have that. And that's the beauty of America, that we have no sense of the past or the tragic past. And we can just pretend what we did 10 years ago. Vietnam, he even says, horrible as it was, you need to forget it in a way and recreate a future, not harp on it, essentially. Uh, and he felt that the, the liberal world really messed up by becoming focused on the sins of America's past, uh, which is contentious now, I would say, and for me, to think about even, but in some ways I can see what he's saying. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think at this point we could talk about, uh, his, his sort of short pamphlet, almost achieving our country, which, um, I think is a really interesting tract that everybody should read. Who's uh, interested in liberal thought for sure in, in American history. But yeah, he does, he talks about what you're saying, Mike, how in uh, the history of the American left, especially in the 20th century, there was always just a history of activism, you know, and Franklin Roosevelt, and just getting things done, and uh, solidarity, and unions, and so it was based on policy and political activism, and he uh, contrasts that with the cultural left which he claims arose out of the Vietnam War and the protests and sort of a school of resentment. And um, they stopped focusing on um, actual future political goals and started focusing more on cultural yeah, resentments. So um, obviously this was rife through the academy with feminism and uh, racism and other things. And there's a lot of progress made, but he argues that really the left got bogged down in that and hasn't made political progress since then, right? I thought that was really interesting thinking about now, like the two parties moving forward, 
and thinking about the left and what kind of identity it has because it's at such a kind of a pivotal moment and it seems to be at um suffering like a loss of like how it's going to move forward i found the discussion on cultural and reformist um identities of the left in the past to be really interesting so i'm wondering what is the current identity of the of the left that's a great question uh yeah right or and i think there's like a fight for it right now right and in terms of now it's it's up and out there what is the left and it's been going on for a while because Rody wrote that like 20 years ago right i mean right uh, and so this fight's been out there and yeah, and you see that within the media, the left media, there's different branches of it. And they're, they're starting to fight with themselves pretty viciously, uh, which is kind of horrific and fascinating to watch at the same time, because it's good to have, this is something Rory would have wanted. It's kind of conversation, right? He always talked about these. And this is the way America grew was these kind of violent confrontations are verbally violent anyways. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know where, where you could situate. I did want to say one thing is that for me, when I read Rorty and always took a lot from him, is that he, I feel, would argue it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both at the same time. Like, And part of the problem is people want it to be one or the other and that we're going to fight it out, and that's where we always go wrong. Uh, and so it's worth putting that out there, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, he's, he's a really all-encompassing type of guy, all-inclusive. You know, you could take almost anything you want from Rorty. I mean, as long as you're the liberal uh, persuasion, you know. But yeah, he, it's not exclusive. Um, so he's he calls himself a pragmatist or a neo-pragmatist, and basically people who just want to get things done, to or at least to ask questions. You know, he wants to make inquiry the the basis uh, we focus on rather than absolute truth. So that's part of his big philosophical project, which was really controversial, obviously, but. Yeah, he's, he's focused on um, pragmatism, and he wants things. He just wants to get things done, like it used to be uh, before when they're activists. And uh, yeah, he sees hope for the future. So it, it's very relevant today, with uh, sort of a little bit of a leftist and liberal, uh, you know, awakening, right, in America. Right, and I think, but across both, uh, you know, both sides of the aisle, I think that the uh, one of the most powerful Rorty-ian ideas for me, besides the idea of uh, contingency, is this idea of describing. I like how to think about it as we're always kind of describing uh, truth into being, uh, the re the power of redescription and hope for the future. But you can see that right now. Um, when we were talking about the left, um, you can see this act of describing, right? Self-describing um, and the struggle to kind of create a description, both individually and of a, of a more collective whole. And it's happening on the right, less of a struggle and more of this like, you know, intense describing. Um, so it just reminded me of like the idea of narrative and creating, um, you know, truth out of words, which I think for us is a really interesting way to look at it too. I know um, we were thinking about the idea of war writing. I think somebody put that, we were talking about that earlier. Um, and I know that there's always this idea of like, well, what, what makes a valid description of war 
or uh, you know a valid account of war. And I think it's interesting to think of it in terms of this describing and redescribing instead of this idea of getting at a truth or an absolutism. Huh, it's a good connection. I love the that describing as a essential aspect of Rorty-ism. Uh, and I guess that also, I guess, with war writing and with political philosophy, I mean, it's a very aesthetic way of looking at the world, right? You got you have to constantly use new metaphors to get at, he's not going for like a true truth, but a constant act of recreation. Uh, and so if you're going to write a war story, like that story used to be good, but uh, as time goes on, right, it has to be redescribed in new ways in order to continue to be truthful in the moment, right? So there's no like a central one true war story. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess that that makes sense. And I, I can also, I also struggle with how hard that is for people generally to constantly re-describe things. And it, they they want a narrative, right? And then to put that on, um, I guess, the the political, the general political community and saying that you have to constantly re-describe uh, your, uh, your worldview or what you hold to be true uh, is difficult and uh, maybe too difficult. And I feel sometimes this last couple of years have, has shown how difficult it is, to me anyways, for people. Right. Right. And I like a couple of the key words I've heard here, which is stories and narratives. And yeah, it was just making me think that... Uh, that was actually another one of Rorty's ideas. You know, he was, he became sort of an anti-philosopher who felt that, you know, philosophy was stuck and it wasn't doing anything and he wanted change. And um, he actually moved to comparative literature and he was really focused on literature and stories. And I think it always ends up being human stories and different perspectives, which makes a bigger difference than, um, you know, definitely analytical philosophers. Uh, John Rawls might be the one exception in modern Western philosophy who has made a big difference. But yeah, people want to hear stories, and they're always, uh, you know, from different points of view. And that's what ultimately shapes our worldviews more than people in an academy, I think. Right. And I think it is true that it's challenging for people to think of the act of redescribing or it's too idealistic. But it also provides a sense of hope and kind of goes against the more fatalistic idea that history is just kind of happening and, and marching on because history is, you know, kind of evidence of that redescription, how we've constantly redescribed the world we want to live in, the country we want to live in, um, the type of people we are. So I think that in some ways it kind of gets away from that more passive, um, reactionary, like, uh, mode of, of being, if we're talking about a political sense and gives an idea that, you know, over time, we've always been redescribing who we are hmm. individually and collectively. Yeah, I think that's true. And I like the word in terms of like a, there's like a different dichotomy that he posits or makes like between not, I mean, it has the cruelty stuff and back and forth and like how we normally think of conservative, liberal and so on. But he has that dichotomy between like the, the actor and like the, 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 the passive, the spectator, right? And use the word fatalist. Uh, the passive types tend towards fatalism in that kind of, and that's the danger that he saw. Um, and you can see how recent political events have kind of reshuffled who's the fatalist here. 
and who's the uh, who are the um, actors uh, and if that's like I know he would hate to have like a morality but the given morality like a kind of um, the, the metaphor of the moment um, it's interesting to think where we fall or personally I think about where do I fall and like uh, and and kind of feel guilty about that at times and so but right yeah, yeah you you really um, you know I think his idea was also, like you said, redescribing things, but redefining things because nothing, there was no end state, you know, no teleology and no, uh, no absolute truth. So yeah, he was, uh, he says that everything is contingent on what's happening in the world and it actually ends up being not truth, but, um, sort of consensus or what people feel to be true. And, uh, what the majority feels to be true. So this is uh, the updated version of pragmatist philosophy. And um, I was just thinking how in the way he describes it is very convincing. And his prose is, is sort of magical. He's obviously a giant intellect. But, you know, if we think about it, there's some holes in that because obviously the other side is also happy for truth to be a consensus. Uh, and then it just comes down to power, you know, so how you create a consensus with propaganda and other things. So it goes both ways, really. It's a dangerous yeah. argument. Yeah, if truth is contingent, does that give it up to a constant propaganda war, essentially? Is that like what it, it, it comes down to? Yeah, and uh, that, that's one of the biggest critiques, obviously, where somebody obviously says immediately, so if there's no absolute truth, then how could... What uh, evidence can you give that the Nazi, the Nazis were immoral or that they were wrong? And he basically says there isn't one. He just says that's what happens, and we have to to do better next time. But yeah, he he just stands up for it. It's a bit scary, but it sort of uh, it makes us be active to shape our world not rely on some higher power, I suppose, is the, in, is the result there. Right, right. And that really resonated with me when I read it that time, that whole, you know, I hadn't read it. I hadn't read Vordy in 15 years. And, you know, I've gotten older and the world has changed and that stood out for me. Like what, what then, how then is there some, how do you, how do you, um, let me think of a way to word this, but how do you uh, grapple with the idea of not holding one's own moral standards or morality as absolute or, you know, recognizing their contingency, but also wanting the world to be a certain way, <laughs> you know, wanting the world to be um, a place where, uh, you know, not those kind of vocabularies um, don't, don't get empowered so that's that's kind of the struggle for me because i do i do it does resonate with me the idea of language being contingent um but then how do you move forward with that right and then what right do you have to impose or to argue for uh, your morality being the final vocabulary or uh, right and right yeah as a teacher i think about that a lot yeah because wrestling about how to do that and how to how a kid can take that forward into the world and like and I think it yeah it, it's a fascinating debate to me I circle around endlessly but 
Like he has that kind of, like we talked about a little bit in the emails, a Dewey and optimism about America and about how a evangelical and a uh, an atheist can go to work on astrophysics together and during the week and then the weekend they do their thing, right? Because final things don't matter to the American project. Uh, and that's, uh, it's hard on a day-to-day level, it seems, and it's getting harder because it feels like maybe because of the media environment or like everything's become more, uh, I guess, universal and absolute. Uh, I, or maybe that's just a, a function of this being part of this day and age. I don't know. Right. It certainly stands out to me um, because, you know, thinking about the idea that he talks about democracy being a project. So it's on us to get out there and form those ideas from Rawls, the overlapping consensus and come together and shape what we're doing here. So, but everybody has to be on board and that's the part um, with, with kind of leaving, leaving some of their beliefs uh, behind. And that's the part that gets tricky. So it is, um, as David said in the beginning, it is like an idealistic, um, hopeful uh, philosophy that seems, you know, scary in the moment. Right. And um, yeah, you mentioned Rawls also with the overlapping consensus. It's really the same thing. Uh, so any any thinker of this, you know, type of uh, somebody who thinks about these issues, they always come up with very similar ideas, which is how do you get, uh, you know, a diverse group of people to live together in peace and tolerance and it's a sort of political philosophy questions. It's going back um, definitely to John Locke and Hobbes and all the others, Rousseau. And yeah, Rawls and Rorty are really continuing it. Um, you know, basically, how do people get along together in a society? And what's, what are the limits of government power and, uh, and individual liberty? And I think they both answered it in a pretty convincing way, which is just to stand up for liberal values of tolerance, but that in the end, there is no absolute uh, authority that says that's uh, required by history. You know, it's not right. like Marxist. Thing. And Rorty um, put out there the idea of human solidarity, that that should be a main value, um, standing with the suffering of everyone. Standing together, yeah, working together, democracy. So, yeah, it just... He doesn't say it's bound to happen, but he says that's what his hope is that should happen, that a, a society will develop this way and not be taken over by the fascists. Right. Yeah, that's that's the, the scary thing. And but with that, the he doesn't, in irony and contingency and solidarity, has one big part of that argument, I remember, was the, because I've always interested in art, right now, I think all of us at WBTR, and uh, and what role does that play, right? In the the more ironic act of self-creation with this kind of movement of solidarity, and he makes a split between like public and private uh, ways of approaching it. And he's saying, yes, you can create and be obsessed with the individual and in art, but you shouldn't try to attempt to apply it to the universal. Uh, and I and I found that interesting. I guess I guess how it plays with art and whether or not. Uh, because there's a lot of art today, and that your essay recently, David, was trying to say whether or not um, politics should play a direct role in art and how they kind of go back and forth. 
Uh, and he spoke a lot to that in a lot of interesting ways. So trying, cause it was a big obsession for him too, being a lover of art. Yeah. I think that last part of the book, uh, was really incredible because he, you know, he just draws on uh, such a range of literature and history and yeah, he's comparing, um, writers, especially, and he makes a dichotomy between ones who, um, who pursue private perfection, you know, and their own private aesthetics and their projects versus those who are serving human liberty. So who have more of a political goal in mind. And that was really just a enlightening type of idea for me. And his, um, you know, his paradigms there were Nabokov for the first and Orwell for the second. And he gave several other ways. But yeah, it was just uh, incredible to me the way he described it. Because you could, um, you know, your, your personal aesthetics and your private goals don't have to coincide with your political projects. And uh, so Nietzsche is another good example there, how he's been used by the Nazis and for almost anything, really. But, you know, you could read Nietzsche as somebody who pursues his own private perfection and is not trying to serve a human society or a political uh, goal. Yeah, and, that, and you don't have to limit the reading of him for some reason because he doesn't, uh, which, yeah, because that's, that's fine for him in his private sphere. Uh, and, yeah, that, that split is interesting it, because in that, the, what was the more recent that you sent me yesterday, David? I've, the, the name, uh, Achieving Our Country. Achieving Our Country. He begins with an observation about two recent novels in 1998 when he wrote it, uh, and essentially those novels uh, were doom and gloom and they lacked hope. Uh, and this is part of the problem. They were spectator novels. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I'd be interested. I wish he was still around, around to kind of comment on the current uh, state mm. of literature and the arts. And um, But who knows, I guess, what he'd say. Something interesting, I'm sure. Right. And it obviously, uh, last, well, after the, the recent election, the, the book really uh, boomed again in popularity, I think, and maybe in our circles anyway, but because of that really, um, you know, far-sighted quote where he described what would happen in a society following America's trajectory, which would lead towards, you know, an authoritarian strongman who would be popular among blue-collar workers, and he really described almost exactly a set of circumstances which has sort of come to pass, and uh, it's very prescient, but uh, it's just really an all-around uh, good Good little book there. Would read it, in, you know, really quickly. Right. Recommended. And those quotes, I hadn't um, read them before, but when I read them too, they kind of encapsulate this uh, this narrative that's taken on a life of its own of the economic anxiety, right? Of like how people voted in the last election out of economic anxiety, mm. which is a problematic narrative on its own but i thought it was interesting that that's what it reminded me of yeah and also um well one of we should mention that uh the the reasons he predicted some of that possibly happening was because the left had sort of given up on the nation itself and had given up any sense of pride and hope for the nation but was just cultivating resentments and uh, focusing on looking inward 
rather than trying to make a change in the country and in the future. And so he sort of followed that to its logical conclusion and said, this is what would happen because, you know, nobody's going to follow you anymore, but you are going to get a right-wing strongman who will come take over, you know, based on nationalism that you have seeded. So, uh, yeah, one of, one of the, another answer is to, uh, for leftists to actually have national pride, a sense of patriotism that, you know, yeah, nobody, no country's perfect, but we have to do our best to make it better and yeah. not give up. That's interesting because a lot of reaction I feel to the, the recent election has been to take one side of that and been like, we didn't, the left did not focus on class and this is what went wrong. Uh, and which is what Rorty is saying in some respects, but he's also saying what you're saying, David, you know, it was, it, we had backed away and had become spectators and had ceased to have pride in the national project. And which is kind of fascinating too, because if you, the current political narrative, it, it's, it's still doubling down on that very much uh, in terms of the lack of pride and almost becoming more international. In some ways, it, it seems like a good thing, but also scary from maybe Brody's perspective uh, because it's kind of feeding into that, the, what the, the right wants. I don't know, the, the lack of that national pride or that, do, that Whitman, Whitmanian optimism and Deweyan, but uh, that, that kind of thing. So... Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about the reaction and uh, in that economic anxiety and and like you said, that narrative itself is problematic too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's so many things we could talk about with these guys. Uh, it could really go on, you know, a lot longer. Like we haven't really touched much on Rawls, who um, who is also super influential and probably more so. And influencing liberal politicians uh, in the Western world, but um, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention one thing that I, I had forgotten about him was that he actually served as a soldier in the Pacific in World War Two, and um, he fought, you know, in the trenches in uh, around New Guinea, the island hopping campaign, and the violence and the things he saw there actually made him uh, renounce his his religious faith, which he was working towards at that time. And um, he became a philosopher after that. And uh, also, I think when he was there in Japan, witnessing, you know, the U.S. Army sort of rewriting a society there after World War II in Japan, that was influential in him doing his thought experiment in a theory of justice for how to create a society. So, I mean, I know we're really interested in themes of war and violence, and um, you know, we could talk about Rawls himself for a while, too, but I think it was really uh, interesting that, you know, he got his start as a soldier in World War II, and where that led for him to make his, uh, his philosophy. Yeah, it's something you... I, I guess I've traced that in a lot of different people, you know, the, the war experience and how it relates to later life experience and thought. Uh, and that's obviously, we can't, going back to Rorty, that can't be like one war experience, right? <laughs> that defines and uh, there, there's a multiplicity. But there does seem to be a kind of a, a general, at least in, again, the circles we move in and the writers that that go and just experience difference, right? Going in the military, going somewhere else and being forced to be outside of the provincial world that they happen to be in. 
uh, creates, uh, allows them to rewrite and create new narratives, right? Uh, new ways of seeing the world and be forced to wrestle with uh, the lack of absolute foundation of their own narrative. Uh, and I see that again and again. It's funny that Rawls would fall into that category too. Uh, and you might have different experiences, but the fact you have different experiences opens up to, to contingency, right? To, to that irony. Uh, and that's kind of hard to, uh, some people go different directions with it, but that's one thing a war experience and I guess traveling generally probably does too, but I don't know. I would think that that would play into it, like going to war and then coming home again, even seeing your own country, it's home, but also as a place that you can examine because you haven't even been there um, for the past six months, a year. Um, so it's kind of foreign in that regard. So I would think that it would cause you to re-describe, to use Rorty's phrase, um, what you see and what, what you're a part of. Yeah, and it, yeah, we're, we focus a lot on the military experience here at you know, the WBT, obviously. And um, yeah, it's interesting, though, to think about it in history, but also how it's happening today, where we're just getting more uh, you know, pretty young veterans who are really more active in society, running for office, uh, doing nonprofits, uh, teaching, and um, I suppose maybe it's always been that way. But definitely over the last few decades in America, maybe coinciding with a, a diminished sort of leftist uh, you know, type of group in America, there, there hasn't been that presence so much as there is now. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I think so, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, and so you're saying that the, the, the recent... Uh, wars and not just them but the recent political situation you see a lot more uh, veterans uh involved in politics and are you saying the last like 10 years or last like 45 years what do you think you're, you're yeah more, more recently from more. these uh you know the global wars on terror but obviously we all have some connection to that that's you know one of our one of the things that divine defines our group so we are really focused on it, especially uh, writers and literary people. So we probably see this in a different way. But, you know, just thinking about someone like Rawls, who was uh, a soldier in World War II. And then we know plenty of uh, old writers from other wars in the past who have, uh, you know, really it's influenced their worldview. Uh, it's just interesting to compare to today what we're starting to see in America a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, we don't know what will become of that. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's funny because it gets back to, I sound like I'm a cheerleader for join the military, but the uh, uh, the exposure to difference is, is something Rorty mentions, I think, in either irony or contingency, one of the one of the bookworks. But essentially exposure to, and he actually uses a military metaphor at one point, uh, and that in terms of dealing with things like race and that when people are put together and they fight together, uh, they are able to um, create some kind of new narrative and move forward from this. And that's one of the things that this military experience offers that may be why military people are more attracted to this uh, advocacy. Uh, and so I think it could go both ways, though. I think that it's not necessarily one way or the other, but uh, that's a personal opinion.
Yeah, well, I think the key word there we've said a couple times, though, is solidarity, which is um, which is one of Rorty's uh, other main ideas and probably his most important in a certain way, politically. You know, it's the sort of the last chapter of that book. Um, he talks about how people need to come together and see things as we versus them to find our uh, similarities, to expand our circle, to include more and more parts of the population, which are more diverse, so that everyone is considered equally human. You know, it prevents cruelty. And so the end state of this project is that, um, you know, we are a, a group of uh, humans who, you know, don't hate each other, basically, but we act in general solidarity to where we're all free. So the military sort of does that on a small scale, giving everybody a purpose. But I think the goal is to enact that in a society. That's what he wants. That's his hope. Hmm. Right. And it was interesting when you were talking about Rawls, because, uh, you know, saying that he gave up his religion, because that's something I was thinking about as I was rethinking um, Rorty. I was thinking about the idea of absolute truth and how religiosity plays into it um, and, and what is to be to be made of that. He talks a lot about, um, you know, the divine and, and taking the divine out of things. And that's the part that um, gets tricky for me because I can get on board with it, um, but I'm just one person and I'm an idealist. So how do you then get a society? Obviously, there's still a lot of um, people that adhere to these religious absolutes. So how do you kind of form form these things? And that, that's, that's I think, what Rawls tries to answer. Hmm. I haven't read any Rawls. Uh, and the use the word justice. It, and it, how does that work for him? And justice is the, the thing that brings people together, this kind of goal, the striving for this absolute justice. Like, how's that word used by him? Because uh, that seems well, to be his absolute word. Yeah, his his equation was justice is fairness, and so he he um, yeah he created a whole system and a theory of justice, which you know is is quite well known in political philosophy circles. And you know he he laid down uh, different principles about what would be allowed in society. So um, the main aspect, which is innovative, is called the original position and the veil of different. Uh, the veil of ignorance, where um, if hypothetically, if we're creating a society, um, you have to put people behind a veil of ignorance so they don't know where their place would be in society, their class, or sex, or anything else. And so when they create uh, the rules, basically, they would make it more free, as free as possible for everybody, but also they would try to make the worst off people, um, you know, benefit the most. So it's sort of, um, it's, it's an argument based on that. Okay, it I just think makes everything that. more fair. Which it's really interesting. The, it speaks to Rory's idea, Rory's idea of solidarity, that no one's suffering, your suffering is as important as my own suffering. Yeah, and he doesn't try to come down against um, people amassing personal wealth or doing any other thing, but he just wants it to be where everyone, where basically the worst off, uh, aren't in abject uh, misery, and everybody has equal opportunities. 
So a lot of his actual vocabulary has entered our society based on um, policies from the 70s and onwards. And so, um, yeah, uh, affirmative action, and then all the rules of equal opportunities and everything else was basically Rawls. Seems fair. Uh, the Turning it back a little bit to the, the religious aspect, I guess, because Rorty himself also, if you read enough of him, he seems to very uncomfortable with absolutes, right? And he sees all absolutes as kind of like a, uh, the, the leftovers from, uh, religion, essentially, like all the different philosophical absolutes that we create to go through life. It's just God kind of down through time that we're still holding on to. Uh, and I guess I, I got, I get stuck on the, uh, the idea of cruelty. So why can, can anyone speak to that? Maybe that why he says, but we can't be cruel. That's kind of his dividing line. Right. And you use the word suffering, uh, don't let people suffer. Uh, but that to me strikes me as also a descendant of that same kind of conversation. Uh, anyone thoughts on that or, or what he meant? Why, why did, why did that escape the judgment that he gave to everyone else? Uh, the, that we shouldn't be cruel to other people. Um, well, I guess like everything else, it is a bit arbitrary, but, um, I think he's trying to say that rather than searching for some sort of a truth, which everybody will find different, we should just focus on reducing cruelty. And so um, that was his idea. He doesn't, he doesn't say that that itself is an absolute idea, obviously, because he doesn't believe in that. But right. that's basically his opinion, that the most important thing we can do is try to improve the world and the best way to do that is to reduce, um, you know, cruelty, cruel actions by humans. Okay. Right. And he sees it, um, truth making. I think he refers to Nietzsche when he says that, uh, it's a human relationship, right? Like truth is made through either through your relationship with yourself, what you're, what you're building or through your relationship with other human beings. So I think he, uh, Rorty wrote a book, the mirror, what, what's the title of it? Mirror philosophy and the mirror of nature. Yeah. Okay. Right. So there is no absolute out there truth. It's all just us making it, um, amongst ourselves. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, and that, then cruelty would be, that wasn't, oh, go ahead. David. That was an earlier book. Yeah. Which is much more focused on, uh, you know, his, uh, the history of philosophy and he was separating himself from the analytical tradition and from the foundational philosophers of Descartes and Kant. So he used some uh, paradigms of modern philosophers that he built from, which was uh, Heidegger, Wittgenstein, and John Dewey. So he sort of saw something uh, similar in all three, which is that they were all trying to get past a metaphysics that had bogged down philosophy since Plato, and to create new vocabulary. And so it was a, pra a pragmatic idea to where they were all basically searching for um, to get away from philosophy itself. Right. And I think that, and this might speak to what you were asking, Mike, but this is my understanding of it, is that he's saying that, you know, that it doesn't mean that you shouldn't hold your own beliefs and hold them strongly. Um, but that you recognize that they are contingent on the language that you are using and your contingency just in space and time. 
And I think that that's where you get to that cruelty piece. If you recognize your contingency and hold your beliefs, albeit strongly, less, less as an absolute, then you make room for um, the experiences and opinions and beliefs of other people. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and truth is made, not found, right? It's not out there. But, you make it. And then so if you're cruel to people, you have less opportunity to make truth, right? Like it, it, it limits uh, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's famously said something like truth is what a group of people uh, agree on. So yeah, definitely not absolute, but just what enough people tend to agree about. So very pragmatic. Right. And even linguistically, our utterances of what we believe is true are contingent on the languages we are given and, um, you know, the sentences we're forming. So. Okay. And so if I were bringing it to today's world, just to, um, and so if I were at like a rally today, like there's all rallies are in the news, right? And so you're, you're, you went there and like one of the rallies that, that people are very excited and by, and, and advocating violence in some ways. Uh, and then, so they're coming together and making a truth, but at the same time, their cruelty is limiting, limiting them from other interaction, right? And so they aren't truly making truth in the, the Rordian sense. Is that, would that be fair or am I, um, way off here in terms of, cause I kind of think people coming together, right? And I look at like the current, the, where people are coming together most I see is like those big rallies and they're, they're very much together and agreeing right. and, uh, and they seem to have made their truth. Um, but in Rorty would critique it, I would assume, right? Saying it, it, they've limited through their cruelty, right? Uh, from being open to other truths. And so they, they aren't making truth. They're falling back on an older version. Would that be fair or make any sense? Well, David could probably speak to it better. But my interpretation would be that they, I would assume that they hold those beliefs very absolutely. Okay. Right. And um, I think, I guess another point is we could focus on the counter protesters, where there's usually 10 times more than them. So even if we make uh, sort of an equation, we'll say if there's 100 neo-Nazis with their absolute truth, but there's 10,000 counter protesters who have a pretty good idea of their truth, which is, uh, you know, greatly outweighs them in society, which says that, no, we're not going to believe in an exclusivist, racist, and violent philosophy. We're going to believe that, uh, you know, that's actually wrong. It's not absolutely wrong, but that's what enough people think by far. Right, and that's why this is such an incredible time right now, Um, because you do see people just getting out there and trying to, to use the word description describe and replace other descriptions like this is who we are no this is who we are so it's a very dynamic process that you can see happening in our current political climate yes the passivity has has gone out the window for for some people yeah it's still there i think and some people are kind of freaking out about it but yeah when you hear those pleas for civility and you get that i guess maybe the the mainstream media but you do like you feel that this comes out but that this pleas for civility um, or it's kind of fear of having things redescribed, right? You want to, you want things to stay status quo and um, you, you're trying to hold on to this truth in a way uh, that is constantly changing and you have to recreate it yourself. Uh, you have to get out there or, 
um, you're going to be, someone else is going to create a truth for you, I guess. <laughs> right. And that's when I went earlier in our discussion, when I brought up the left, it was because when I was reading it, I was thinking about that, that they have this like open opportunity and kind of the masses are pushing for them to, you know, as a party or to describe themselves or re-describe themselves in a way that um, may be more progressive than they've done in the past. So it's really interesting time period for even just party politics. Oh, definitely. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that's probably about uh, going to wrap it up today, I guess. Uh, does anybody have any final thoughts? Maybe uh, about how we should all follow Rordian solidarity and get active. Get out there and make truth. Yeah, get out there and, and re-describe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Any thoughts? Any other thoughts on that? Besides get out there and participate? Definitely get out there and participate. And I um, reread, when I reread this from having read it years ago, my favorite line, can I share it? No, yeah. please. Um, when Rorty is defining an ironist, he says, she has radical and continuing doubts about the final vocabulary she currently uses because she has been impressed by other vocabularies. Vocabulary is taken as final by book, people or books she has encountered. So that always uh, spoke to me. Um, and he talks about worrying about being born into the wrong tribe or being born into the wrong space uh, or um, time in history. And that always resonated with me. And I think it speaks to not only get out there and be active, but talk to other people, listen to other people, read lots of books, and um, just encounter uh, as many narratives as you can. Well wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> that sounds like a good place to end the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for stopping in.